I want you to hit me as hard as you can. If you were a child of the 90s, you might have grown up on a steady diet of Saturday Night Live. Long before the internet allowed you to watch any sketch at any time, you actually had to stay up till 1 in the morning, or set the VCR, to catch what people would be talking about at school or work on Monday. One of the biggest sketches to ever come out of those early 90s SNL days was Wayne's World, a cable access show hosted by two headbanging 20-somethings. So it was no surprise when SNL mastermind Lorne Michaels decided to give this recurring sketch the big screen treatment. But the path to this classic film was filled with reports of on-set tantrums and creative differences. So how did this early 90s tale of hard-rocking slackers turn into one of the most influential comedies ever made? Pile into the Mirthmobile and crank up the cassette deck as we find out what the f**k happened to this movie. Growing up in Toronto, Canada, Mike Myers got his start early, appearing in commercials at only two years old. When he was 10, he appeared in an ad with soon-to-be Saturday Night Live legend Gilda Radner. His love of performing eventually led to auditioning for the famed Second City, where he was accepted into the touring company. It was here that Myers created several characters that have gone down in history, from Dieter of the famous Sprockets sketches to his mulleted metalhead Wayne Campbell. Myers would take his Wayne character to the local public access station, where he appeared regularly in short sketches titled Wayne's Power Minute. That success led Myers to get hired at Saturday Night Live, making his first appearance on January 21, 1989 as a featured player. Barely a month later, Myers premiered his Wayne character on the Leslie Nielsen-hosted episode as the final sketch of the night. There, at a time most commonly referred to as where a sketch goes to die, was Wayne's World, about two suburban buddies on a public access show. Originally, Wayne was going to be a solo character, but when Myers pitched the idea, SNL head honcho Lorne Michaels suggested he have a sidekick. At that time, Dana Carvey was the biggest name on the show, thanks to characters like Church Lady and his George Bush impression, so Michaels thought it would be brilliant to pair Myers and Carvey for the sketch. Prior to stepping on stage for the first time, Myers only gave one note to Carvey. Garth loves Wayne. Thanks for watching Joe Blow Videos. If you enjoy our shows, please like and subscribe, and click the bell to be notified when new videos go live. Now, back to the show! The sketch quickly gained popularity, appearing on the show 19 times over the next five years. Realizing the potential, Michaels approached Myers about writing a movie based on the characters. This itself was an achievement. Movies based on Saturday Night Live sketches only later became plentiful, but at the time there had only been one prior SNL movie, the 1980 classic The Blues Brothers, featuring Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. Myers agreed to the idea, and Michaels enlisted fellow SNL writers Terry and Bonnie Turner to help the inexperienced Myers complete a script. Michaels simply advised Myers that naturalism is dead, which allowed Myers to feature more surreal elements, like breaking the fourth wall and scenes where, for example, he opens a door to a James Bond-style training room. The next hurdle was who would direct. At the time, female directors of studio films were not the norm. But Michaels remembered Penelope Spheris, a good friend during his time living in 1970s Los Angeles. When Michaels first moved to New York to try his hand at live TV, he asked Spheris to join him. But Spheris had a young daughter and enjoyed her life in L.A., so she declined the offer. But Michaels told her that if he ever needed anything in L.A., she would be his first call. 
Needless to say, it wasn't long before Spheris' phone rang and Michaels asked her to help an up-and-coming comedian produce a series of short films for Saturday Night Live. She agreed and would produce seven short films together with that up-and-coming comedian named Albert Brooks. At the time Wayne's World was coming together, Spheris had mostly been known for her music documentaries The Decline of Western Civilization, Parts 1 and 2. Spheris believes Part 2's focus on the heavy metal scene in 1988 Los Angeles was the reason Lorne Michaels hired her for a film about a pair of rebellious headbangers. Spheris admits that the transition from indie documentary films to a multi-million dollar studio project was difficult, likening it to making a Batman movie compared to her previous efforts. But she took it all in stride because she knew such opportunities were rare for female filmmakers. Ever the perfectionist, Myers would continually revise the script. He knew the base of the story from his own life, like sitting under incoming airplanes and an ex-girlfriend who randomly gifted him with a gun rack. But he also drew inspiration from other man-child characters, like Pee Wee Herman. Spheris said that by the time they filmed, the script had been rewritten so much that the final version looked like a tie-dye shirt with all the changed pages printed on different colored paper. Dana Carvey, not wanting to just be set dressing to Wayne, constantly attempted to give input on Garth to Myers, but grew increasingly frustrated when he would receive new drafts of the script only to discover none of his suggestions were implemented. This actually resulted in Carvey quitting the production only three weeks before cameras were set to roll. Of course, Carvey was ultimately persuaded to return, with many of his suggestions, like the Mirthmobile's licorice dispenser, making it into the movie. The rest of the cast came together fairly quickly. For the role of sleazy TV executive Benjamin Kane, Michaels suggested Rob Lowe. The actor was then better known for dramatic work like The Outsiders and St. Elmo's Fire, but he had recently hosted Saturday Night Live and demonstrated his comedy chops. Spheris didn't think casting Lowe was a good idea since he was embroiled in a sex tape scandal, to which Michaels replied, good, that means we can get him for cheap. The next major role was Cassandra, Wayne's rock star object of affection. At that time, Tia Carrera was in the final stages of being cast as David Hasselhoff's marine biologist girlfriend on Baywatch, but Carrera decided to skip her last audition to instead read for Wayne's World. The casting notice said they were looking for someone who could rock like Pat Benatar, so Carrera sang an a cappella version of Hit Me With Your Best Shot. Spheris instantly loved her, but had to fight with the studio to cast her. Carrera ended up performing her own singing for the movie. A handful of other familiar faces would be included for various parts, like Ed O'Neill, Chris Farley, Meatloaf, Brian Doyle Murray, Alice Cooper, and Robert Patrick in an arbitrary T-1000 appearance. When Myers handed the script over to Paramount, their response was, I don't get it. But with a relatively minor $14 million budget, the film was not a high priority for the studio. Excuse me? Baking powder? As Spheris noted, the company had such low expectations that they never interfered with the production, which allowed them to make the movie they wanted to make. However, there would be some debates as to exactly whose movie it was. Spheris said she felt like she was making three different movies, the Mike Myers version, the Lorne Michaels version, and then her own version. She admits that as an inexperienced director, she let everyone have their input, at least knowing that once she got into the editing room, she could craft the film she wanted to make. The road to the film was rocky, and the actual production would prove far worse. According to Spheris, she and Myers had constant arguments, as Myers felt ownership of the material and how it would be perceived, because he had created the character and lived with it for several years. Myers also spent an inordinate amount of time finding the right suburban home for the show's basement studio, 
which frustrated the director. Myers and Carvey would also constantly try and one-up each other on set, something encouraged by Lorne Michaels to the dismay of Spheres. Carvey admits that when it was just a sketch on SNL, he was fine simply being the support to Wayne, but for the movie he wanted a fully realized character for Garth, even incorporating elements of his own brother into the character, like his quiet demeanor and mad scientist antics. But maintaining Garth's overbite for so long eventually led to jaw pain for Carvey that required ice packs to soothe. Myers felt extreme pressure to make his first film work, but also had the added complication of his father's failing health. For Myers, the buildup of pressure eventually blew over the otherwise harmless inconvenience of discovering only margarine instead of butter for his bagel, resulting in furiously flipping over the craft service table and storming off set. Spheris described Myers as emotionally needy and tried to help by assigning her own daughter as his assistant to manage his tantrums. In the annals of film history, there are few cinematic moments as iconic as the Bohemian Rhapsody scene. As with everything else on Wayne's World, getting there was not easy. Myers originally wrote the scene based on growing up in Toronto when he and his brothers would endlessly rock out to the tune while driving around. However, at the time of filming, Queen's broad appeal had dwindled drastically. Lorne Michaels wanted to use a Guns N' Roses song, as they were the biggest band in the world at that point, and said, you'll excuse me if I want to make this movie a hit. But Myers stuck to his guns, even threatening to quit the movie altogether if they didn't use Bohemian Rhapsody for the scene. Myers won the argument, but then shooting it became a whole other source of suffering. The scene required constant headbanging, and the number of takes that were necessary led to severe neck and back pains for the rocking occupants of the Mirthmobile. And even though Myers fought hard for the scene, while filming he was concerned it wouldn't be funny, and feared it would be viewed as disrespectful to the song. As he put it, I was afraid we had pissed on a Picasso. But Spheris reassured him that the scene worked and they should stick with it. And boy, did that scene work. After the movie's release, the song rocketed up the Billboard charts and peaked at number two, reaching seven positions higher than when it was originally released in 1976. But the ultimate seal of approval came when Myers was able to get an early copy of the scene to Queen guitarist Brian May and a bedridden Freddie Mercury, who absolutely loved it. The following year, after Mercury had passed, the scene won an MTV Movie Award, which May accepted and said Freddie would be very pleased. In the years since the movie's release, Queen has achieved a newfound legendary status. Without this famous Wayne's World scene, it's possible that Rami Malek would never have won an Oscar for Bohemian Rhapsody, a movie that includes the tongue-in-cheek casting of Mike Myers as a record executive who claims the song would never be a radio hit because it's too long and kids needed something they can bang their head to in the car. The popularity of that scene would eventually help propel the soundtrack to number one on the Billboard charts and be certified double platinum. In late 1991, the film was test-screened, and while most movies are lucky to score an audience approval rating of 60%, Wayne's World received an incredible 98%. Myers had missed the screening, as he was attending his father's funeral. But when he returned and saw Spheris' cut of the movie, he had 11 pages worth of notes for her. But Spheris refused to make any of the changes, saying that the film worked perfectly as it was. Lauren Michaels told her that if she didn't make the changes, then Myers could block her from directing any potential sequel. But Spheris wouldn't budge, knowing she had crafted the best possible version. Unsurprisingly, Penelope Spheris did not return to direct Wayne's World 2, although that may have been a bullet dodged. <laughs> Zang! 
Wayne's World was released to the world on February 14, 1992, and it set a President's Day weekend record of $18.1 million. It remained on top of the box office for a month until it was unseated by Basic Instinct. The movie would go on to make $183 million worldwide, remaining to this day the top-grossing SNL film, and it would later set home video records. Even critics had a hard time finding fault in the film, with Gene Siskel ranking it on his list of 10 best films of 1992. The numerous catchphrases became part of the pop culture landscape, but Wayne's World wasn't just a massive hit in its time, it changed the way studios saw comedies. Without Wayne's World's juvenile humor, it's possible we never would have got such classics as Tommy Boy, Ace Ventura Pet Detective, Friday, and Billy Madison. Even the phrase, That's what she said! often attributed to Steve Carell's character from The Office, was actually said first by Wayne Campbell. Yeah, that's what she said. The film's impact can still be felt 30 years later. Carvey and Myers would reprise the characters several times over the years, including the SNL 40th anniversary special and a series of commercials. They even got to introduce the Best Picture nominee, Bohemian Rhapsody, at the Academy Awards. The cast and crew have reunited on various occasions to celebrate the movie, including on Josh Gad's popular pandemic YouTube series, Reunited Apart, showing that even with all the reports of friction and bad blood making the film, everyone involved moved on and came to appreciate that they created one of the greatest and most influential comedies ever made. Let us know your thoughts. Leave a comment in the comments. And thanks for watching. Party on, Garth. I guess.